You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Brian Tuck. This is Creative Confidential, episode 39. We get to spend an hour today with the president and CEO of the League of American Orchestras, Jesse Rosen. We have a pretty wide-ranging conversation, get to talk about the evolution of culture, the future of classical music, and many, many other things. Before we dive into that, I do want to remind you to please go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. If you haven't already, it really helps us with our visibility on that app as well. We are also on Stitcher, so if you are a Stitcher user, you can find us on that app as well. Here we go. Jesse Rosen, President and CEO of the League of American Orchestras, joining us from his offices in New York. Check it out. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak to you this morning. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So for those... I suspect most of the listeners who have found this episode know all about the League of American Orchestras. But for those who don't, can you describe what the organization is and what role it performs? Sure. Um, well, you know, we're, we are uh, what's generally referred to as a um, uh, performing arts service organization. and. Uh, we have peers in the fields of opera and theater and chorus and chamber music and in you know going further afield of performing arts museums etc uh, etc et and um, uh, we've been around since 1942 and um, you know a simple way to think about it is to say that we do the things that uh, individual orchestras can't do on their own. We work on things that require some form of collective action and uh, really system-wide challenges and opportunities. So, for example, we have an office in Washington with two staff members, both of them registered lobbyists, who work on a wide range of regulatory and legislative issues. Uh, we are um, I think probably exclusively, you know, the only organization dedicated to uh, developing talent in the orchestra field, specifically, you know, with administrators and trustees and volunteers. We also include musicians, but obviously not instrumental training, more uh, more associated with their their uh, other roles um, in their orchestras. And um, we try to keep our community connected so that uh, information and knowledge flows and uh, gets distributed. Uh, you know, we're a big country. There's 1,200 orchestras, and uh, it's important that people stay in touch. And um, and then finally, we ourselves generate uh, and curate uh, knowledge and information that is helpful to our members in understanding both their own circumstances as well as some broader uh, environmental. Uh, issues that come that uh, that bear on their on their work. So, uh, and I would say in recent years, the thrust of all of these uh, channels of activity has been to 
help orchestras navigate what is um, most certainly a period of very uh, rapid and profound change. Um, so that's kind of a, a nutshell description of our, our work. I think it would surprise people when you say that there are 1,200 orchestras nationwide. I think a lot of the media attention uh, you know, obviously goes to the larger ensembles in the Northeast here, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, um, the New York Phil uh, as, as examples. But there are many smaller communities that that do have regional orchestras where, you know, the performers may not be full time employees. They may perform in several of, of those regional orchestras sort of as a circuit. Mm hmm. The, the main, you know, I find that the management aspects of performing arts organizations and orchestras in particular is interesting because it represents, at least to me, the intersection of several very different interests. There's a political aspect to it in any city or any, any region. There's a fundraising philanthropic dimension to it there's an artistic dimension to it that you have to manage and in addition you're running a business which has a very unique product it's not as if you're running an organization that has developed a better mobile app for um, you know for what any service you name it uh, you're selling something that's very, very intangible. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of regional orchestra leaders face that may not be in large metropolitan areas. And um, <clears throat> are you you looking for a observation about what you just said, or is there... Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess, um, I don't know, the, the, um, the nature of the art form and how it relates in smaller communities versus larger ones, um, it's certainly a wholly different set of, of dynamics. By the way, you know, I used to play in the uh, northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic up in... Uh, you know Scranton and, mm -hmm. and Wilkes-Barre, and uh, you know I remember I remember those experiences a lot, and uh, there was a lot of appetite for uh, what we were doing, and and we were playing um, you know pretty straight up classical music. This is you know when I was in, I was still in college, and uh, you know I was a ringer, and would come out and play play the concerts, um, but there was uh, we, we played um, you know pretty standard repertoire and then there was a you know good good interest in in uh, what we were doing um, you know one of the dynamics at play in, in the way you frame this you know between the big organizations and the smaller ones it, it's, it sounds a little paradoxical but the big ones sometimes can take more chances because they may have a subscription season of 18 or 20 or 22 weeks where um, they are able to include programs that may be a little riskier, um, but because of the subscription system, um, they can sustain, you know, what might be, 
you know, a little lower sales on some of those programs, if that's in fact what happens, because it will get evened out across the, the series. But if you're doing, uh, if your season is like four concerts and you decide to take a big risk on one of them, you know, that's 25% of your activity. So uh, you just have greater financial risk associated with artistic uh, risk. So that's certainly one of the one of the differences, I think. Well, and that and that issue, I think, is present, you know, in contemporary or even, you know, you know, rock and roll bands that are touring. You know, do the Rolling Stones really want to play Jumping Jack Flash again? Well, <laughs> the answer is they probably have to because right. that's what the ticket buyers are, are going to see. And in the classical context, um, you know, how many times do you really want to present Beethoven's Ninth or... You know, or Brahms, or any any of the, you know, sort of more traditional repertoire uh, versus something that's a little bit out of out of left field. Right. Right. You know that goes to another theme that um, I had viewed your uh, your keynote at the 2015 leagues uh, conference, and one of the themes you hit on initially was this this idea that there really is a tension of past versus future mm-hmm. and and that manifests itself in a, in a couple of different ways but uh, repertory is is certainly one of them right. how do new composers get their works heard how how do they rise to a new york phil or to a philadelphia orchestra or cleveland or someplace like that Right, right. Well, you know, in some respects, you know, I think this is a, um, a place where we've seen a lot of progress. And, um, you know, I've been working in the field for, I don't know, 30, 30 plus years, I think. And, you know, when I started out, um, uh, the idea of playing music by a living composer was really anathema. And um, people were very... People in orchestras were very uncomfortable. It was kind of generally perceived to be a high-risk proposition, both financially, but also high-risk in terms of alienating your audience. And um, there was quite a rift, you know, between orchestras and living composers. And also compositionally, you know, if you, in the, I guess going back from after the Second World War, um, you know, in the United States, composition fell into a uh, to a large extent into a very academic uh, mold and a lot of influence from the I guess the Darmstadt school in Germany um, and uh, composition if, if you were a composer you didn't have a lot of choices uh, in terms of how you know what what kind of genre you wanted to work in I mean there's still a lot of um, influence of the 12 tone system and that's what people were being taught and um, it was hard for many composers to establish their own voice and um, I think one of the great things about the moment we're in now is that a lot of that's fallen away and um, composition in America has become uh, far more diverse uh, aesthetically and people are writing in all kinds of genres uh, you know, all different kinds of influences. And 
I think it's safe to say that um, you know within this broader um, uh, range of compositional styles, there are many that um, are that audiences find very appealing and engaging. Which isn't to say that you know it's being dumbed down and music's not any good. It's just that in in all the multiplicity of voices, some of them are really connecting uh, very well with the public, and so. Um, I say this because I think uh, accompanying this has been greater interest in um, supporting uh, living composers and, and emerging composers. And so, you know, today we have more uh, activity um, geared to um, nurturing and developing compositional talent, particularly uh, in an area that previously has been, been kind of neglected, very hard, hard to come by, and that is opportunities for orchestral readings. And, you know, if you think about other art forms, you know, whether it's literature or opera or theater, those all have um, built-in mechanisms for editing, workshopping, trying out. If you're a composer, um, you don't. You know, you write your piece, and then it gets played, and you hope it's pretty good, because if it isn't, it's not going to get played again. Um, but you don't often have a second chance. And so composers miss that opportunity to uh, hear their piece and get feedback, whether it's from musicians themselves or a mentor or composer. So it's very, um, it's very challenging. So all this is just to say that today, uh, there are more reading sessions available. In fact, the league is involved in um, uh, uh, a program uh, of readings called Earshot, which we do together with the uh, American Composers Forum and New Music USA and the American Composers Orchestra. And we uh, work with, I don't know, maybe three or four different orchestras every year that provide uh, services of the orchestra so that young composers can get a chance to have their, um, their works read uh, you know, in a non-performance situation. And we bring uh, mentor composers to uh, the readings who uh, give feedback to the composers, plus the musicians themselves and conductors also uh, meet with composers and um, create an environment where they can get immediate direct feedback from professional musicians and uh, established leading composers. So this has been, you know, I think a real, a real plus. I would say that it's still not enough and, and being a composer and making a living as a composer continues to be a very challenging way to make a living in this country. But we've made a lot of progress. Well, I, I think in all art forms, you know, making a making a living or or subsisting even is uh, a very difficult proposition. Um, where I whereas I think that people generally who you know the non-orchestral audience someone who's just you know reading the new york times or or uh, in any you know who works in any field you know they see stories in the media about performers that are in the major ensembles and you know kind of wrongly assume that life is like that for for every orchestral musician which really is quite the reverse i think right. Mm -hmm. um, you know more on on this idea of 
there being tension between serving and honoring the past traditions while innovating future developments. Um, I, I, I want to ask you specifically about how large ensemble, well, actually how any orchestra or any performing arts organization um, can utilize social media to effectively engage with younger uh, younger audience members. I know that that is a common theme among symphonic and opera uh, companies where they're always trying to grow the audience into a younger demographic. Can you can you speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah, I, I can. Um, though I might, you know, amplify it a little bit beyond, you know, or expand it a little bit to talk about other things orchestras do beyond social media. Um, uh, but I mean, the New York Philharmonic, for example, has a digital media department of eight full-time people. It's just, I think, the second largest department in the organization. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, the opportunity that orchestras are seizing upon is that uh, digital media outlets and platforms create, um, you know, not only a way to communicate and, and to uh, deliver information uh, about concerts, but they really are places where uh, an organization can create opportunity for people of similar passions around music can uh, come together and connect with each other. And, you know, it's a part of this large, larger idea that the business of the orchestra is greater than that of simply producing concerts. And, um, you know, we, we know that in the public there's an appetite for a lot more uh, understanding, knowledge, information, socializing with people, uh, you know, who share this interest in, in classical music. So orchestras are um, taking advantage of, um, of social media as an opportunity to, to really curate experiences that people, uh, you know, who love classical music, um, hopefully some of them go to the concerts, but, you know, that's not necessarily the, you know, the, the, the price of, of entry. Um, I will tell you, you know, of all the things orchestras do, I, I totally do not consider myself uh, deeply knowledgeable about this, um, you know, partly because it just changes so fast. And I think even people, oh, sorry about that, even, even people who are expert in this um, uh, have a hard time keeping up. Um, and I think, uh, you know, some of the other areas, though, that are kind of fascinating to me are the ways orchestras are kind of rethinking what's the experience of being at a concert and um, and coming to a concert hall. And again, you know, this idea that there's really so much more uh, available to people above and beyond, you know, sitting uh, quietly at the concert and clapping, you know, at the end of the pieces. And, um, you know, so we've seen um, lots of experimentation taking place, and some of it, you know, interestingly enough, happens before a concert and after the concert. The concert stays exactly the same, but orchestras will create experiences for people beforehand, like 
you know, whether it's pre-concert recitals or social opportunities. And then I mean, in Cleveland, the Cleveland Orchestra has this thing where after the concert, um, musicians in the orchestra come out into the lobby. They have a wonderful series curated by somebody from Oberlin of world music and jazz. And they open the bars and it's like a big social uh, occasion uh, after the, the performance. But the concert itself stays exactly the same. And then, of course, there are you know, all kinds of experiments going on with what's happening in, uh, in the concert itself. And, you know, these range from multimedia uh, productions to uh, contextual programming where the concert is used as a way to create openings and information, uh, understanding about a composer and the times that they, they uh, lived and, and created their, their orchestral work, um, to uh, programs with lots of conversation, uh, mixed genres, uh, you know, just about everything you could think of, and all in one way or another devoted to creating a concert experience that uh, will be more attractive and more appealing to younger audiences. I think certainly the multimedia presentation you know the presentation of of the experience is certainly um you know one of the most effective i mean at least in my just as a general concert goer i i would say that um it really is amazing the way people just can't seem to sit still <laughs> anymore um you know whether you're at the movies and you see people surfing on their phones or um, you know, whether there needs to be some visual stimulation along with the music, you know, the um, New York Phil had, and a lot of orchestras have done this where Pixar makes some of the animated films available. Um, I believe Randy Newman's brother was, was curating that or conducting that series um, where you would see excerpts from the Pixar films, Toy Story, etc you know, coupled with the, the, basically what amounts to a live soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I've seen uh, quite a few of those. And, you know, I think they're generally really, really successful. And, you know, it's interesting that um, there continues to be such a high demand for the orchestra as an element in other art forms. In film, you know, it's still the, this, you know, the the sound palette of choice is to have a symphony orchestra, and in video games now it's the ensemble of choice. It's been that for dance for decades and decades. I mean, it's it's really a remarkable uh, sound and, and instrument, uh, if you will, and continues to be remarkably durable. I mean, it's kind of you know, a little paradoxical. People think of orchestras sometimes as, you know, limping along and, you know, financially challenged. And certainly, you know, there are institutions that, that uh, for, for which that's true. Um, but if you, you know, take the long view, it is just kind of a miracle how robust the uh, appeal is of the communicative power of a symphony orchestra. It's just, it's just wild. And so, 
you know, orchestra institutions are taking advantage of that. And of course, film, you know, is extraordinary uh, opportunity and wealth of great music and great cinematic art. You know, the series the Philharmonic does here uh, every year has been really, really strong and, you know, great attendance and, and really interesting, uh, you know, illuminating uh, understanding. And of course, it draws a, a film audience too, because in film, you know, in, in so many films, the music is an integral part of the film. So it's not something just added on. It's part of how the story is told. And so, um, you know, it's just fascinating. And, and as I said, you know, they, they attract quite a few uh, people who are big film fans. And, um, and just, you know, it's just wonderful, wonderful music. I think these concerts are just, you know, great, great experiences. Well, I think there's no doubt that the film industry has been one of the best boosters in, in a way uh, to to the symphonic world, especially when you uh, when you take into account the profile of someone like John Williams and his reach through you know through pop culture through the Star Wars films and and um, you know and and all of the work that he's done and the many other. Uh, obviously, he's not the entire industry, but just as an example of the way that people, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people have heard his work without, you know, maybe even realizing it. Um, you know, I wanted to also talk a little bit about, you know, community engagement. And I think, you know, this is a theme, whether you're in a large city or whether you are in a small you know, in a smaller setting. So even if it's uh, a mostly, you know, rural area or suburban community, um, you know, community engagement has been such a, uh, a tricky issue. It's, it's, I think in the arts initiatives that I've, I've been involved in, um, whether they're visual arts or, or uh, music related, the question always seems to be, how do we get people who are not performers or don't have musical training in this case, how do we get them to care? How, how, how do we reach that audience? You know, that, that may not be concert goers or might not have ever played an instrument before or anything like that. Um. Well, it's a big question and a lot of ways to um, get into it. Um, I think um, I think it's some very fundamental and profound place. Uh, I think orchestras can answer that question um, when they kind of work their way through uh, conversations about the business that they're in. And, um, you know, I think the, you know, the, the kind of core belief system in orchestras um, up through the end of the last century was essentially that they're in business to produce concerts 
of high quality for the people who wanted to come hear them. And the thrust of the work was around a set of practices that could ensure really, really high quality performance, well supported financially through effective marketing and fundraising. And the development of orchestras to achieve those aims is really what was going on in, you know, beginning in the let's say 1960s. And there was a lot of uh, resource to support that. And um, so people who work in orchestras, I think, uh, have prided themselves on the quality of playing of America's orchestras and their ability to uh, have a, a, an infrastructure that can support uh, a living wage to you know, a very large, large ensemble. And um, I think that that outlook and, and that thrust uh, was exactly appropriate and right in the time that um, you know, the modern American orchestra was kind of developing its, its, uh, its systems and, and practices. And you know, now we're at a place where um, doing that continues to be um, really important. I mean, you never stop caring about the quality of performance that you're able to do. But now, orchestras are being asked to play all of these other roles, from education to a meaningful role in the community to, in a sense, creating value for the community over and above what it does in its main uh, concert series. So. Um, I think that, and, and this is kind of, you know, what I think is really the interesting tension that we're in and that you started out referencing earlier that, uh, you know, how do we, how do we um, continue a tradition of um, great repertoire uh, played with great virtuosity and passion and simultaneously uh, be a uh, a resource and a value to uh, a wider set of community stakeholders. Um, so, you know, orchestras have been thinking about this and wrestling with it because it's hard, because ultimately it gets down to um, resource allocation and the kinds of talent you need and uh, the kinds of people you partner with. And um, I think, um, you know, to the question of how do you connect with others who have not been uh, part of the, the orchestra family, uh, so to speak. There's like a million ways to do this, and many of them you know, are being done, whether it's the orchestra performing in healthcare settings or performing in, uh, for incarcerated populations or uh, partnerships with other artists in the community who may represent different art forms and, and musical uh, traditions. Um, but ultimately, um, there has to be, uh, in the leadership of an orchestra, a kind of belief that, that number one, that this, this expanded role uh, is important. And then, if you believe it's important, then I think the opportunities uh, you know, are, are just uh, extraordinary. Um, and I think the most fascinating opportunity, though, is actually you know, what happens in a concert hall. Um, you know, to some degree, orchestras have addressed their broader community uh, roles through ancillary activity. 
whether it's you know small ensemble of musicians or uh, engaging teaching artists to carry out community engagement work and education work. Um, but the really interesting place, I mean, is in the core work of producing concerts of orchestral music. And um, there, I think, is really where the, the greatest opportunities are, because that's really what we do. I mean, that's what we're expert at. That's what all of the practicing and preparation of orchestral musicians and conductors and soloists and pianists, uh, that's what that's all about. And so finding ways so that the core experience of a concert becomes something that uh, has uh, apparent openings for new audiences to plug into, I think is just kind of where, where it's at. I'll give you an example. I, I heard a concert of the Memphis Symphony, um, and this goes back maybe five years, and uh, they had a new music director, Mei Ann Chen, and Mei Ann uh, is from Taiwan. And she started the concert, she came on stage, and she said that the theme of this concert is hope. And the reason it's hope is because yesterday I became, or, or last year I became uh, an American citizen. And in becoming an American citizen, I had to ask myself, what does that really mean to me? And what does America mean to me? And she said, what it means to me is hope. I think hopefulness is the, the big idea that uh, America stands for. And that's why these pieces have been put together on this program. That was all she said. But, and she said in like 30 seconds. And immediately, you could feel the whole audience kind of, it's like, oh, wow. You know, it's like, it just gave you this incredible way to think about what you were about to hear, an insight into the artist, into what mattered to her. And, and what mattered to her, of course, she expressed in a theme that virtually everybody in that audience could connect to. And then, so then the concert takes place. And so it included, um, let's see, it had the Barber uh, Summer of Knoxville, whatever year that was, 1913 or something. Um, but she, the way she did it was she had a local actor, an African-American man, come out and read the James Agee poem first and then uh, performed the piece. And, you know, it's, it's a powerful and stunning piece. And I don't think I'd ever heard it before with somebody reading the poem first. And that really kind of reinforces the, the works message and then she did um a new piece that they commissioned by osvaldo gollyhoff and which was a choral work and so one of the uh neighborhood choruses was involved of course we have a chorus on stage they all bring their family and um and then at some point in the program um as in the second half she mentioned that they had a relationship the music director said they had a relationship with a school They've been working with an outcome uh, in their nice little uniforms, all these like six-year-old kids, and they line up across the stage. And they had all been practicing the uh, Simple Gifts hymn, and which she asked them all to sing. And then she asked the audience to get up and sing. And we all stood up and we sang Simple Gifts with these kids. And then they played Appalachian Spring. And, um, you know... This program might not have been everybody's cup of tea, but to be in a concert where you could sing 
and where there were kids and uh, and their families and um, uh, you had somebody from a theater company there and poetry. It was such a rich experience. There was no multimedia at all and there was nothing extraordinary from a production value standpoint of this concert. But it was created in such a way that I think anyone could feel at home, you know, in that in that in that program, whether or not you were connected to classical music or or not. So I, I think there's just an awful lot that, that can be done. And I think we have some you know wonderfully gifted people working in our field now who are thinking about, you know, how to how to make programs like that. Well, maybe multimedia by another name <laughs> might be the way to might be the way to to think about that but that's you know that's the key that's the difference between creating an experience that people will talk about after it's over to their friends and uh colleagues in terms of being more participatory than just sitting in you know sitting in the audience and having you know, the, the performance come to you. Um, I think that's really, really brilliant. Um, switching gears mm -hmm. a bit. Um, we, we, you know, we've talked about these sort of macro issues in terms of, uh, or, you know, ma orchestral management and community engagement and programming and things, but on a very, uh, you know, from a different perspective, one of the aspects of the podcast that I do is to show people the way to, to tell stories of arts leaders and professional artists, uh, the story of how they got from where they started to where they are today. Now, one of the things that interested me uh, in your story is that you attended Manhattan School of Music. Uh, you were... You, I don't want to say we're a trombonist, but you played professionally in the past. I'm not sure if, if you still have time because you have a pretty big job as it is. But uh, how did you get how did you get your start in the arts? You were you were a performer first, correct? Yeah. Well, you know, both my parents were performing artists turned administrators. My mother was a modern dancer and uh, danced in Martha Graham's company. And uh, my father was a bass player and uh, turned orchestra manager. And, uh, you know, so I was raised in a family surrounded by um, the performing arts and, and also, you know, both of my parents becoming administrators. And, um, you know, so the transition to, um, you know, an administrative role felt incredibly natural and comfortable uh, to me since I'd kind of grown up in that environment although you know at the moment you know when I when I made the decision I wasn't going to pursue a career as a trombone player anymore it was quite that was you know it's a challenging moment I, I went to study one summer with uh, Ed Kleinhammer who's the bass trombone player in the Chicago Symphony and I went there because I was thinking about quitting and someone said to me you should you should only make a big decision like that when you're feeling really great about it and I hadn't been feeling very good about playing trombone so this uh, person who was kind of a mentor to me said, you know, what's the one thing you might do with a trombone that would make you feel great? I said, I always wanted to study with this guy. So I went and I studied with him for the summer. I worked at Ravinia uh, parking cars. I heard the Chicago Symphony every night for the summer. And I told Kleinhammer 
at the beginning of the summer, I said, you know, I'm thinking about quitting. I want to study with you. And at the end of the summer, I'm going to make a decision. I want you to help. He said, fine. So I studied with him all summer, and, and uh, it was great. I mean, I adored him. My playing got better and better and better. And we get to the end of the summer, and I said, so what do you think? And he said, well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you if you're a first trombone player or not. But he said, you might try an experiment. He said, here's the experiment. Stop playing. And if you stop playing and find that you can't live without it, then you can go back to it. But if you find that, you know, you can live without it and you're drawn to other things, then that's the right thing to do. And I thought for about 30 seconds, I said, how could you say this to me? You know, quit. I spent all this time trying to be a trombone player. And, uh, but then this great feeling of relief came over me. It's like, you mean I don't have to do this anymore if I don't want to? And, um, and I never looked back, and that was it. And uh, I realized it was not what was you know, in my heart at that point. And uh, it was not a difficult decision, frankly. And, uh, and so that's when you know, I, I kind of turned the corner, and I, uh, I got an internship at the NEA, which was my first kind of art job. And, uh, you know, and then things happened from there. But when, I was really grateful for the summer I spent uh, Kleinhammer. When did you begin your your musical studies as a, as a young child? I suspect. Yeah, I think. Um, well, I started playing the trombone. I think in fourth or fifth, fourth grade, actually, which was really rough because you know when you're that little, lugging around a big old trombone is not much fun. Plus, you can barely reach sixth position, but that was when, <laughs> right. when it started. So, yeah. <laughs> when you were in the fourth grade, were, was your, were your initial musical training experiences, did those occur through the public school or did you have a private teacher? Um, it was both. Um, uh, we had in, in elementary school, we had a band. I don't know if we had an orchestra. And then in um, all of my other schools um, were all public schools and they all had orchestras plus I was always in the you know the all city uh, high school orchestra and uh, the youth symphony and all of that stuff and you know usually I took lessons from I took private lessons from someone who played in the orchestra my father managed so uh, when I was in high school which was in Pittsburgh when my dad ran the Pittsburgh symphony I studied with the uh, principal trombone player uh, in the Pittsburgh Symphony. And uh, when we were still in New York, I took trombone lessons. This is a long time ago from a friend of my, my dad's. Three pants away uh, in, in the village. Um, so anyhow, so that's, that's how that, that worked. So back to your studies in Chicago, you are given this decision tree, basically, of, of put it down and see if it bothers you, uh, and if it doesn't, keep going in that direction. Uh, you you then went to the NEA for an internship, and then how did it? How did you progress from there? Mm -hmm. um, I got a job working for an organization called Affiliate Artists, which was a really interesting uh, organization, a nonprofit arts organization. And they were in the forefront of 
the movement to bring um, performing artists in theater and dance and music uh, into um, community settings. And um, they had a roster of about 100 artists, opera singers, pianists, conductors, modern dancers, um, you know, quite a few come on, you know, subsequently became, you know, very, very important leading artists. And what affiliate artists did was they identified corporate sponsorships to support residencies in communities uh, around the country. And often, usually these were, uh, uh, there'd be a pre local presenting organization in the community, usually an arts council or maybe a producing company. Um, but these were the artists, we trained them in how to communicate and deliver a performance to audiences that didn't know much or weren't very familiar with the arts. We call them informances, you know, and the term has stopped. It was really trademarked by affiliate artists back then. And um, uh, you know, and the artists performed in coal mines and aircraft carriers and, you know, in factory floors and, and uh, loading docks and, you know, every place you could imagine. And uh, it was fascinating work. I mean, I, I loved doing it. And um, uh, I was responsible for our residencies in the Northeast and then for a while in the South. And um, then I ran one of the special programs we did for conductors. I ran something called the Exxon NEA Conductors Program, which was a national program to train uh, young conductors by putting them in three-year residencies with big orchestras around the country. And that was really my link to the, to the orchestra field. And, um, and through that, uh, I, I, you know, I got to know a lot of people in orchestras, and I went to work at the New York Philharmonic as orchestra manager, and then I went to uh, run an orchestra in New York called the um, American Composers Orchestra, and then I went to the Seattle Symphony as general manager, and then came to the league, what's now, I think, almost 17 or 18 years ago. So, so that's the chronology. Certainly not, certainly not a linear route. Or, or maybe it is, no. but, but there's quite a few uh, twists and turns uh, yeah. in, in that progression. Yeah, I mean, I was never, I never thought of myself as a career orchestra manager, you know, on a track to, you know, lead the biggest and most prestigious orchestra I could, I could get my hands on. And that had been, you know, kind of a, a career path, you know, during the, you know, when I was like in my 20s and 30s, people in the orchestra field, that was what everyone wanted to do. And you had a lot of movement in the field. Um, and today, you have, uh, you have less movement that way. You have people who are extremely gifted running orchestras or, that are medium size and are very happy to stay there and don't feel you know, that their success is contingent upon running the New York Philharmonic or the LA Philharmonic or the Cleveland Orchestra. In some ways, it's kind of a healthier uh, system and it really falls out of this idea that's developed that you know orchestras are they're not cookie cutters they are uh, very much about their own local circumstance in their communities and need to have that that flavor and uh, their success measures are um, much more uh, nuanced now and unique to individual 
organizations as opposed to in the past, you know, you measure an orchestra's success, did they tour Europe, did they play Carnegie Hall, did they have a, you know, a major recording contract, and um, those things, you know, continue to be important indicators, but they are not, um, you know, a template uh, for every orchestra's success. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule. I, I certainly want to respect uh, re- respect the clock here. I know I know you have to go, but uh, th- thank you again very much for spending some time with us and talking about the evolution of culture. I think is really the uh, theme of of this episode and, and a few others. So. I'd love to leave the door open and maybe come back in a, in a few months and and do an episode two with you. Sure, would love to. And uh, again, I appreciate your your interest, Brian, and your really good questions, and uh, look forward to more. Okay, everybody, Jesse Rosen, President and CEO of the League of American Orchestras. Thanks very much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential. To get future episodes, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud or Stitcher or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net.